Welcome to the Burning Archive, the podcast where the past is never dead, the past is not even past, and whereby thinking about the past, we try to live better in the present. In this episode of the Burning Archive, I wonder about cultural decay and whether it is perhaps even a cultural revolution. In some people's mind, a breakthrough to be celebrated. But is cultural revolution to be celebrated or feared? Are the Red Guards coming? Are they coming for you? That is the question for today's Burning Archive. We've all heard the phrase cultural revolution. Some even uh, celebrate Black Lives Matter and woke culture as one such cultural revolution that is going to harbour in, harbour, bring in a brave new world. So today I am going to talk about a real cultural revolution, the Chinese cultural revolution of the 1960s and the 1970s, and how this particular past of the Chinese Cultural Revolution is neither dead nor past, but still very much in the minds of many of the people, 1.4 billion people in China, and certainly still in my mind, and perhaps something we should all be aware of. And I'm also going to talk about how I see uh, the events of the last few years, uh, not in China so much as in the, I guess what we call the West, but many uh, contemporary liberal democratic societies, how I see those events as not in any way as bad as the Chinese Cultural Revolution, but a prelude, perhaps, of a similar terrifying carnival of destruction. I am Jeff Rich. I'm a writer, historian, podcaster, poet, and very minor government official, and even now a YouTube uh, artist, let's call call myself, rather than a YouTuber. Um, and uh, this is the Burning Archive podcast. Um, thanks to all those uh, new listeners and people who've uh, joined in the show and given me positive feedback in uh, recent weeks. This is, good. can you believe, the ninth episode of the Burning Archive uh, you can read more of my writing at theburningarchive.com where I uh, have a blog, uh, which, you know, has been a little bit podcast-focused in recent times, but there's a lot of back material there. And uh, in posting my my episodes, I'm also sort of linking back to some of the posts on my blog over the years that relate to some of those those themes. Uh, you can also, if you wish, support me by buying my book, 
Gathering Flowers of the Mind, Collected Poems 1996 to 2020, which is available on uh, Amazon and other uh, Booktopia and other online retailers. And that's both a print and an ebook. And you can even check me out reading some of the poems from said book on the Burning Archive YouTube channel. Uh, so if you like any of that, please uh, like, subscribe, leave me a positive review um, and send us a message if you like on on Twitter or whatever means you can you can find. I still haven't quite worked out how to leave a voice message on the Anchor platform, but I will have to do that one day. Uh, okay, so let's get into our topic today of cultural revolution and whether the Red Guards are coming. The biggest nation on earth, China, is in turmoil. Is China's aging leader, Mao Zedong, losing control? Has Mao gone mad, driven perhaps to megalomania by the hysterical adulation of the teenage Red Guard? So that is a little clip from the BBC in, I think, 1967, as the Cultural Revolution uh, shocked China, shocked the world. Um, and gives you a little bit of a flavour of the sense of the momentum of the event, the the and the the you know the shouts of the crowds, the huge huge crowds who assembled in Tiananmen Square to celebrate Mao Zedong and his calls to uh, bombard the headquarters and take down the capitalist rotors and generally uh, cancel, let's say, a hell of a lot of people. And nowhere for me, if I just step back from uh, historical events to the events of trends of today, but nowhere is cultural decay more evident to me than in the spasm of cultural self-destruction that appears to have taken over so many of our societies over the last decade. Cancelled, well, to me at least, cancel culture, woke them, is another form of iconoclastic hatred, of uh, zealous and destructive cultural revolution. Those who advocate it are a new wave of red guards. And just as the Chinese people regret bitterly these events today, something we'll get into a bit later, Uh, and want them never to happen again. So we should pay attention to this enduring past, Uh, even though we may be less aware of it in our our sort of, you know, Western societies. Um, And some of those listeners who, 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 you know, were not even born when these events were, were going on may not be aware of just how, incredibly destructive they were 
So as I've been watching the events of the last 12 to 24 months, I have been thinking a lot about uh, the Chinese Cultural Revolution and the model of the Red Guards. The similarities between past cultural revolutions, not only in China, but uh, much of the iconoclastic fervor uh, associated with the Bolshevik Rev- Revolution in Russia in after 1917, with you know socialist Agitprop going out to to declare a brave new world and to smash the church and smash the icons of the past and to to construct a you know a bold socialist utopia. But I, I have been thinking a lot about the similarities between those past cultural revolutions and the progressive ferment of today. Perhaps a dangerous thought. I don't know. We'll get into it. But as we observe the the huge riots, not only in America, but the sort of simulated versions of them in many uh, societies, in like in Australia and Britain and uh, throughout Europe and many other places. We saw the statue toppling, again a feature of the Cultural Revolution, which we'll get into later on. The cancel culture, the, the sort of uh, um, elite concessions to that cancel culture of all sorts of powerful people who, who suddenly um, feel ashamed of their past lives. Uh, as we've seen the soft authoritarianism, even journalists denouncing the act of truthful reporting, uh, and all sorts of um, frauds, let's say, or at least pretenders, like uh, the dark emu guy and white fragility and Ibrahim Kennedy, uh, critical race theory, the whole works. To me, this is a, a new terror of a progressive cultural revolution. And it is, I feel, obliged to call it out as such because there is a real moral repulsion, I feel, about it, which is based in, in my own uh, experience and reading and personal memory of those events of the Cultural Revolution. So let's get into that a bit, hey? So in June last year, as the world went crazy after George Floyd, etc., I wrote a post on my blog called The Red Guards Are Coming. And I, I, let me just read a little bit from that now. So, now I observe a troubling resemblance between the disorders and ideological waves of recent times and China's cultural revolution. In the early 1960s, after Mao's disastrous Great Leap Forward, and Khrushchev's 1956 condemnation of Stalinism, the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party began to edge Mao out from his dominant position. Threatened by this elite power struggle, 
Mao mobilised his favoured factional leaders and the zealotry of young people in a frenzy of ideological possession that aimed to bombard the headquarters and denigrate Mao's enemies as all kinds of traitors in a nationwide civil war. Many names were used, rightists, capitalist rotors, counter-revolutionary elements. Today, new toxic terms are used. Fascist, nationalist, Trump supporter, racist. New counter-truths emerged, just as today, some ephemeral leaders of a frantic crowd might declaim that silence is violence and looting, burning buildings, destruction of monuments, throwing projectiles, beating people prone on the street, even shooting innocent people, are not violence, but largely peaceful protests. Let there be no doubt, the Red Guards are coming for us again today. They are bringing terror Kneeling will only mean a bullet in the back of the head, mostly symbolically and for some in reality. I am genuinely terrified. I grew up amidst leftist authoritarianism, knew great combatants of this scourge, and read deeply in its history, traditions and iconography. I can feel the chill of these undead in my spine today. I guess now, today, I'm as I speak in, in uh, July 2021, one year after writing that piece, I perhaps feel less terrified. Some of the frenzy does seem to have died down and some of the, the madness seems to have have waned um, but I guess it's still of interest to think just why I had such a vis- visceral reaction to it and it is because of this theme of of cultural decay and our human instinct to destroy things that are precious and how sometimes it can just take hold of masses of people uh, and inflict terrible, terrible horrors on people. I recall a trip I made to Beijing in 2003 where I visited the magnificent Summer Palace just outside of Beijing, the Great Palace uh, set in beautiful gardens, or set of palaces, or set in beautiful gardens of the Qing emperors. Uh, it was a place where the Xianfeng emperor of the mid-19th century spent almost all of his life. And we'll come back to him shortly. The summer guard, summer palace is described as a vast ensemble of lakes, gardens and palaces in Beijing. Inspired by the gardens in South China, there are over 3,000 Chinese ancient buildings housing a collection 
of over 40,000 historical relics from different dynasties. And since 1998, in fact five years before I was there, or less than five years, four and a half years before I was there, uh, UNESCO uh, has listed the Summer Palace on its World Heritage List. In fact, it describes the Summer Palace as a masterpiece of Chinese landscape garden design. The natural landscape of hills and open water is combined with artificial features such as pavilions, halls, palaces, temples and bridges to form a harmonious and uns- uh, a let me say that again to form a, a harmonious ensemble of outstanding aesthetic value. As you walk around the palace, you notice all the beauty, but you also see evidence of two great waves of destruction, two great acts of barbarism as well as civilization. The first was the looting, burning and destruction of the Summer Palace in 1860. This destruction was not done by the Chinese. This destruction was was done by the French and British troops, especially the British troops, as part of the Second Opium Opium War and amidst the uh, incredibly destructive Taiping Rebellion in mid-19th century China. On the orders of Lord Elgin, who was in fact the son of the, another Lord Elgin, who had stolen the Elgin marbles from the Parthenon. So if you've ever heard of the Elgin marbles, uh, it is this, this, uh, this, this family seems to have a lot to account for. On the orders of Lord Elgin, the Summer Palace was destroyed. Destroyed as well as looted extensively and almost insanely by many of the British troops. The Emperor Feng, who I mentioned briefly before, had in fact fled the city, fled the Summer Palace and fled Beijing as the French and British troops had occupied Beijing and humiliated the dynasty by taking its capital. In retaliation, Feng humiliated and executed some emissaries of the British. And in a perhaps regretful rage, Lord Elgin ordered the burning and destruction of the Summer Palace. As it happened, it even appalled and terrified uh, some of the participants in this looting and destruction. They were appalled by what they were in fact capable of. As one observer put it, uh, who's quoted in the wonderful book by Stephen Platt, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, which is a history of the Taiping Rebellion, which includes this this event. 
They were glorying in the destruction of what they could not replace. Glorying in the destruction of what they could not replace. That is an extraordinary observation. And perhaps the thing that I see, the connection with some of the events of today. It shocked them, this destruction of the palace. It shocked China. It shocked the world. Even French literary intellectuals like Victor Hugo were scandalised and wrote letters in protest about what the British had done. Even many in the British Parliament were scandalised by what their their um, troops and soldiers and emissaries had done. And it scandalised the world partly because it was more than just a terrible act of barbarism, but it seemed to contain a whole story of the self-destruction of a culture, or the self-destruction or the the ruin coming down upon a culture and an empire amidst cultural wars and civil wars. Again, for me, an echo of today's events. As an observer of the time, Robert Swinhoe wrote, as he watched the burning of the glorious Summer Palace, And let me quote here, and again this comes from the book by Stephen Platt, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, A History of the Taiping Rebellion. So Robert Swinhoe wrote, As roof after roof crashed in, smothering the fire that devoured its sustaining walls, it betokened to our minds a sad portent of the fate of this antique empire that is the Qing Empire of China its very entrails being consumed by internecine war beset on all sides with naught to turn to for succour it at last succumbs with a beast of vapour lost in the ashes of its former self this is very much another image added to the repertoire of the burning archive. The scars of this destructive event of the burning of the Summer Palace in 1860 uh, are still felt, visible, commemorated today in communist China. They remain a central event in the uh, nation's understanding of China's century of humiliation, which I did talk about a bit in an earlier episode uh, on uh, a great state rising. And that story of an antique empire, its very entrails being consumed by internecine war, does also somewhat evoke America in decline. As we watch any number of places in Minneapolis and Washington and Portland and Seattle going up in flames, being taken over by autonomous zones, 
with endless riots and looting. Not so much now, but certainly through 2020. The second visible sign of destruction at the Summer Palace, sign of a wave of destructive frenzy, comes indeed from the Chinese Cultural Revolution, unleashed by Mao and his Red Guards. Students play acting as soldiers and ideological enforcers, the ancestors of today's woke zealots. As you walk through out the Summer Palace, you see statuary, idols, artworks that have been smashed and defaced, especially images of Buddhist and Taoist um, religious art that were hated by the Maoist Red Guards. The destruction was not only here, but in the Forbidden City, in Shanghai, in Tibet, in Lhasa's sacred Ajokang temple. It is said that the Red Guards destroyed 4,922 of Beijing's 6,843 catalogued historical relics. That is two-thirds, even more than two-thirds, getting on to 70% of the historical relics. It would have been worse if not the leader Zhao Enlai, who was a little bit resistant to Mao, had not acted surreptitiously to protect a lot of this heritage. Zhao Enlai, you might uh, know, made the famous remark, I think in discussions with between Mao, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger as the Americans went to China in the 1970s to broker the sort of new diplomatic relationships between China and America, I think it was Kissinger who asked Zhao Enlai, you know, what had been the impact of the French Revolution. And Zhao Enlai cryptically, nomically said, it is too early to tell. But that's a bit of a digression. And the main story is just this astonishing destruction that you can still see uh, in the Summer Palace and in other parts of China. So I have the same foreboding that there are forces that, that want to unleash a similar wave of cultural destruction on society today. And so just what was the Chinese Cultural Revolution? This is where we need to make the past not dead, but make it live again and make it not even be passed. Mao had decided to mobilize the young people as the driving force of a vast campaign to purify the Communist Party. There was to be a new revolution, a cultural revolution, a revolution in people's thinking. 
Again, thanks to the BBC for that little clip there from its uh, uh, brief um, documentary, I guess, it had on the Cultural Revolution from several years ago and an old news report. So I briefly talked about some of the events leading to the Cultural Revolution in my little uh, excerpt from my blog. But let me sort of fill out the story a little bit. So the Chinese Communist Party came to power in China in 1949 after a revolution that featured lots of ideological re-education. Again, if you've watched the film The Last Emperor, you would have seen some of the kind of re-education that uh, the old aristocratic, I guess, or imperial class were subjected to after 1949. And not just them, but all sorts of uh, ordinary people as well. In In the 1950s, Mao launched what proved to be a disastrous piece of social engineering, a forced industrialization of the economy called the Great Leap Forward. Combined, indeed, with a mass campaign to eradicate certain pests like sparrows and flies, uh, which unwittingly led to an environmental disaster and a great famine that killed tens of millions of people. All of this rather weakened Mao's position in the early 1960s. And he was being uh, not sidelined, but was less influential as there was a bit of an economic thawing and less ideological zealous men like Deng Xiaoping and others, who he would later describe as capitalist rotors, began to provide some basic, I guess, economic freedoms uh, and and uh, easing of party control over uh, some of life. Mao, of course, did not like being sidelined in any way whatsoever. So in the 1960s, uh, together with other forces in the society, but in part as part of a, a uh, top-down effort, he enlisted the masses in a power struggle at the top and induced a mass frenzy through huge rallies and calls particularly on young students and young people to be militant and attack class enemies, revisionists, traditionalists, intellectuals. This was the Cultural Revolution. It was sort of signalled almost by a, uh, a, an article where Mao urged people to bombard the headquarters, by which he meant uh, make all possible attacks. And there were so many petty resentments, so many, uh, so much peer pressure, let's say, so much uh, social difficulty that was searching for a scapegoat that 
millions of people genuinely, enthusiastically embraced this cultural revolution. They became Red Guards and they attacked, humiliated and killed their own teachers, their own administrators, party leaders, intellectuals. People even denounced their own parents for making comments critical of Mao. There's an extraordinary uh, video you can see on YouTube of a, a man who I guess is probably in his 70s now visiting the grave in the backyard of his old Beijing home where his mother was executed after he himself set the red guards upon her and she was summarily executed. There were these uh, struggle sessions where people were forced to confess their, their, well, I guess we'd say white privilege today, but conf- confess their, 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 ten- their old imperialist, capitalist, class enemy, revisionist sort of attitudes. Thousands upon people were shamed in the most terrible and disgraceful way. Um, forced to wear, you know, boards around their their necks with humiliating names and old sort of dunce hats with, with uh, you know, insulting names on it as well and shouted at by people in the streets. Thousands of people were forced into suicide. And there was this constant denunciation of the four olds, the four old ways of thinking, the four, the old customs, the old culture, and the old habits. So much ordinary texture of ordinary life was denounced in this way. Makeup, furniture, long hair, western novels, and particularly the Beijing Opera, which had a tradition going back a thousand years and told many of the, many of the stories of Chinese culture, and is now performed again in Beijing, unadulterated. Streets were renamed, we'll come back to the Beijing Opera because it relates to the great film Farewell My Concubine. Streets were renamed Oppose Imperialism Street. Rather like today, I guess, that street in Washington was renamed Black Lives Matter Plaza. And Mao, there was a criticised Confucius campaign. Uh, There was anarchy, riots, statues of foreign explorers and others were torn down. Intellectuals who were not killed were sent to re-education camps, including Deng Xiaoping, who later became the leader of uh, China, who, who led it sort of turn to market state capitalism in 
the 1980s. And I believe perhaps even Xi Jinping's father was sent to a re-education camp as part of the Cultural Revolution. I'm saying that from memory, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that is the case. Now Mao's wife, Zhang Qing, was a particular zealous leader of all this. She was a former actress uh, who, I guess, had long had her own identity and character suppressed as Mao's. Peccadillos, I guess, were, were indulged. And she created, she created a, a revolutionary model opera to replace the old forms of the Beijing opera. So rather than the old traditional stories of uh, emperors and their concubines, where the female concubines were generally played by male actors, um, you had representations of uh, you know heroic peasants and red guards um, with these utterly political and propagandistic sort of stories. And, you know, I can still actually remember some of those, in fact, um, touring and appearing in, um, I think even Australia in the early 1970s. Um, and I can remember, you know, seeing new stories about all of this back in the early 1970s as well. And Mao's wife, Young Chong, was part of the Gang of Four, uh, who became, I guess, like a, a, became an iconic story later, the name of a um, sort of indie rock band in the 1970s and 1980s. But the, the Beijing opera and its replacement by this, this revolutionary model opera with all the right messages and the right representations of true revolutionary struggle was, is very significant for the story I'll tell a little bit later about the great film Farewell My Concubine. So that's the Cultural Revolution, uh, an extraordinary series of events, a kind of mass hysteria, but also a political thing, and something that had a deep, profound impact across the society. Terribly complex, um, terribly traumatic and it really only ends definitively with Mao's death in 1976. The historian Frank de Kerter, I think that's how you say it. his name's Dutch, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure how to say his name, but I think it's de Kerter. Uh, he's written a book called The People's History of the Cultural Revolution. And he summarised that over the 10 years of the Cultural Revolution, between 1.5 and 2 million people were killed. But many more lives were ruined through endless denunciations, false concessions, uh, false confessions, struggle meetings and persecution campaigns. The historian Anne Thurston, who wrote a book 
ordeal of the intellectuals in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. He explained that the Cultural Revolution was neither a sudden disaster nor a holocaust, but an extreme situation characterised by loss at many levels. Loss of culture and of spiritual values, loss of status and honour, loss of career, loss of dignity, and of course, loss of trust and predictability in human relations as people turned against each other. To me, the great film of the Cultural Revolution is Farewell, My Concubine, uh, which was made in or released in 1993. And the last uh, minute and a half or so of audio that you've heard is indeed uh, from the final performance of Farewell, My Concubine towards the end of the film. You might be able to guess some of what's going on, especially if you know Chinese, uh, in there. But I'll I'll leave that and urge all my listeners to watch this film somehow or other. Whether it's on, I don't know if it's on streaming services or not, but I watched it recently on YouTube. It's a long film, it's nearly three hours. uh, But it is a great, great insight into 20th century Chinese history and especially the history of the Cultural Revolution. And what happens in uh, Farewell Mark Concubine? Uh, before I just go into the plot of Farewell Mark Concubine, I should say that the director, Chen, Chen Kaige, he uh, was himself a member of the Red Guards. He joined the Red Guards as a uh, young man and his father had been a film director. So Chen, as a teenager, actually denounced his own father. And there's sort of some echoes of this in the film. So I guess if nothing else, it's, it's a remarkable film in that it is uh, 
let's say it's a lived experience of the cultural, very much a lived experience of the Cultural Revolution. And when it was made in, uh, you know, uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, it was just becoming possible, um, what, I guess 15 years after Mao's death, to criticise the Cultural Revolution openly. So... The story of Farewell, My Concubine basically follows two uh, children who uh, who are poor children and join up a Peking or Beijing opera troupe um, in the 1920s. Uh, and one, Duzi, is trained to play female roles and another, Shitu, plays the male roles. And... Um, there is a particular famous opera, Farewell My Concubine, uh, where there is the uh, a hero, Zhang Yu, and the concubine, Consort Yu, who at come whose who, who sort of story is the culmination of one of the sort of you know great periods of war and strife in China. And the concubine, Consort Yu, ultimately, uh, as as the world of Zhang Yu is falling apart, his, his sort of kingdom is collapsing, uh, Consort Yu takes his sword from him at the end of the opera and kills herself. So the story is uh, of Farewell My Concubine uh, traces these two actors who become famous performers in the Beijing Opera, renowned the best possible, um, and they end up uh, experiencing the Japanese invasion of China, the culture, the you know the communist revolution, the sort of decadence and corruption of the twenties and thirties, I guess the experience of the nationalists the who became Chiang Kai-shek and ultimately the Cultural Revolution as well. Uh, and during the Cultural Revolution, what happens is that, uh, well, I guess consort or, or DE, the, who plays the consort, the female roles, uh, is really in love with Jalu, uh, but he never really um, reciprocates, let's say, and is en- ends up marrying a courtesan at a brothel, um, and have they have this difficult, complicated relationship. Then during the Cultural Revolution, what happens is the opera troupe is goes through a struggle session with the Red Guards uh, which uh, is is a brilliant realisation of this whole thing in, in, there's even denunciations within the troupe itself uh, perhaps rather like the denunciations Chen Kage might have made of his own father and it culminates in in the two old 
friends and performers uh, denouncing each other and to save their own skins in the struggle sessions, betraying uh, the 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 wife of Jalu, uh, who in despair afterwards kills herself. Then at the end, in 1977, a year after Mao's death, the two performers from the Beijing Opera uh, reassembled, no longer need to pretend to perform uh, Zhang Qing's sort of revolutionary model opera and are dressed up as their traditional roles would dictate. And that is where that final scene that I played the audio of is played. But I won't tell you what the ending of the film is. Absolutely marvellous film and utterly heartbreaking, but one of those fabulous, fabulous insights into history and into a culture, I guess, um, that uh, is possible through film. So really, if you are listening, if you can, do do check it out. If you've got a spare three hours to watch a great film on YouTube. Um, and you'll get a lot more insight into the Cultural Revolution and why it has left such a scar, I guess, on modern Chinese society. And I guess also, I guess that's also a way of explaining to me the my great reaction to the new resurgence of cultural destruction and iconoclasm that seems to have taken hold in, uh, you know, contemporary society. You know, it's part, for me, that's part of what's so powerful about the image of the burning archive, that it is this, you know, strange fever that grabs us now and then in history and and um, leads to this frenzy of self-destruction uh, and you know uh, I guess witch hunts and 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 murderous repression against uh, our fellows it's certainly not just an attribute of communists or progressives or Chinese or Americans. There have been ways of this kind of destructive iconoclasm. Uh, it, the, the very word iconoclasm comes from a wave of such fervor that happened in uh, Byzantine, so I guess Greek, Byzantine, Orthodox, uh, Christian society in around about 700 or so, eight, eight, 700, 800 AD, where literally people would smash the icons that were such a great part of Byzantine art. And in part, that was a response to the uh, ascendant faith of Islam, uh, which, which, you know, um, had of purity, wanted no representations, no human representations. So it is the not just the political complexion of this um, 
this this resurgence of destructiveness that frights me, but it it is its universal depth. And this it's not only a story of despair because the Cultural Revolution, even though it was horrible and dreadful and you know incredibly traumatic, also contained some notes of hope. As the historian Frank Dakota noted, it was an incredibly complex human drama of people confronting difficult circumstances. And in part in doing so, when you really look behind the top-down stories and see the kind of things that were represented in Farewell, My Concubine, of people's struggling to cope with this and somehow resisting this complete conformity, you you get a rather different picture. As he says, it that picture undermines the picture of complete conformity. People were not all zealous fans of Mao. Many people just uh, hid what they truly felt and burned what they had to do and somehow managed to survive. And Dakota says there, the combined total of their choices ultimately pushed the country in a direction very much at odds with the one envisaged by Chairman Mao. Instead of fighting the remnants of bourgeois culture, they subverted the planned economy and hollowed out the party's ideology. In short, they buried Maoism. You could say they practiced the ordinary virtues and survived well. And that, I guess, is the hope that I see amidst our own cultural civil wars and the necessity for us all to endure through this wave of soft totalitarianism that some among our peers are inflicting upon us. So, that's what I'll turn to next week in the third of the episodes on cultural decay and perhaps like uh, our my other little mini-series, the third episode is the most optimistic and next week I want to talk about how to endure, survive and not succumb to this pattern of cultural self-sacrifice and I guess I will there turn to another cultural tradition that has helped form me the dissident tradition of Eastern Europe of Samizdat the inspiration of Vaclav Havel and what one uh, Czech dissident described as the parallel polis the second culture that can emerge in these kind of difficult times and be the basis for the resurgence for a renaissance of a more humane and decent culture. Thanks for listening to 
podcast episode 9 of the Burning Archive podcast, the podcast where the past isn't dead, the past is not even past, and by thinking about the past, we learn to live better in the future. I hope you've uh, enjoyed this episode of the Burning Archive. I've tried a few more podcasting technique things, sound production technique things in this episode. I hope you've enjoyed that. And until next week, do check me out on uh, theburningarchive.com or or on my YouTube channel. And if you like, you can check out my book, Gathering Flowers of the Mind, Collected Poems 1996 to 2020, which is available on Amazon, Booktopia and other online retailers. There's both a print and an ebook. And I do hope you all, at some point in the not too distant future, watch the wonderful farewell my concubine and think about what it has to tell us about cultural decay and cultural revolution. Until next week when we talk about the parallel polis, this is Jeff Rich. See you next time. What thou lovest well remains, the rest is dross. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage, whose world, or mine, or theirs, or is it of none? First came the scene, then thus the palpable Elysium, though it were in the halls of hell. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee.